Let's do it. Let's do it. Broadcasting from around the world, you're listening to The First 100, a podcast on how founders acquired their first 100 paying customers. Here's your host, Hadi Rodwan. Good to have you on the show, Tunde. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for being part of our show. Let me just start with a quick introduction for our listeners. Tunde Kara is the founder of Vendee's, an all-in-one food procurement platform. Uh, Vendee's has recently raised 30 million Series A round led by Partec Africa and Telcom. Vendee's launched in January 2020 as a middleman and you were trying to solve the challenges and inefficiencies in Nigeria's highly fragmented food sector. And you were the middleman between the suppliers and the restaurants and the food business. And your goal was to facilitate deliveries within 24 hours, but then you noticed that actually that delivery time was not met by your suppliers. So you wanted to step in and become the all-in-one platform to make sure you provide that service to the end customer. And now you're delivering things within 12 hours. Did I get that right or I've missed something today? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a good summary. Right? Before we deep dive into your strategies on how you built Vendee's, take us back to the founding aha moment. So there were a series of what I like to call Eureka moments or, or aha moments, like you mentioned. That. So one of them was I like to eat pop chops. I'm a big fan of pop chops. And everywhere I travel to, I always look for the best pork chop restaurants around and my favorite pork chop business possibly in the world was one that was on the streets close to where i work um in lagos it was the food truck and then they sold um pork chops and the eureka moment that sort of puts a sort of like bugging question or bugging need to find a solution in my subconscious was um it was during a three-week period so during break at work, I would, on certain days during the week, I would go and get pork chips. And then during this three-week period, the first time I went there, they sent me bad pork. I complained, went back, and they changed it. The second time I went during this three-week period, they didn't even have pork at all. So it was like a waste of my time. I left. But during all of this interaction, I had gotten contacts for the owner of the food truck. And then by the third time I was going in that three-week period, they had shut down. So I reached out to the owner. And long story short, um, most of his complaints were really, when he drilled it down, complaining about procurement, um, the quality of supply, the costs, the regularity or the consistency. So everything just pointed towards to that. And he said he was shutting down for a while to see if he could figure out how to run his business more efficiently and more profitably. So that went. It was just something stuck in my mind. It was, it was an inconvenience for my lifestyle. Over the next one to three months period, because I can't remember exactly what time frame it was now, because it's like almost four years ago now. My co-founder and COO, Olumide, who incidentally, we had started another startup together about a year or two earlier with my other co-founder, Gatsumi, won an online competition with his wife. And the price for that competition was an all-expense paid stay at a hotel in Lagos. And when they were there over the weekend, he overheard the supply manager, or I think he was the actual hotel manager, complained about an order he had placed apparently maybe about two weeks ago and he still hadn't gotten there. Like I shared my experience with them already. And then he walks up to the guy and says, oh, 
sounds like you're having issues with your supply. Are you looking for new suppliers? And the girl's like, oh, yeah, if you can beat my current prices, I don't mind having new suppliers. So Lily comes back to us because we're, at this point, like, we lived in the same estate, housing estates. Um, we started another business together, which didn't go as well as what it was an actor company in partnership with Right Sharing Apps. So we're used to investing together and doing stuff together. So he comes to us, me and Gatumi at that time, and says, oh, you know what? I think there's a business opportunity here for us to, like, make small money on the side. Let's put some money together. This is the problem that I noticed, and I think we can try and solve it. So because of my own experience, it just clicked. I'm like, oh, yeah, definitely. I, like, this is something that we should actually solve because, like, I've been noticing stuff like this too. And so we put some small money together. We didn't have any idea for when, like, wait right now. It was just really, a, because we all had full-time jobs. I was CEO of another company. Um, he was CEO. Um, but to me, was a co-founder of Shift4G, which is another YC company. It was a biotech YC company. In our heads, we just all decided to just make some money. So we, we pulled some money together. We gave it to Olumide. Incidentally, the first quote-unquote Vendi's order was fulfilled by his wife. So his wife went to the open market. That's Olumide's wife. And she bought the first order for this hotel. And something shocking occurred during that transaction. We realized that even at open market prices, we were still better than, so when I say open markets, I'm talking about like your farmer's markets in Europe and co. So we realized that we're, we're still better than his own suppliers. And even if he sends his own people to the market. So in our heads, they're like, there had to be some structurally fundamental problem here. Because if he could just walk to a farmer's market and get the prices that we got, why was he buying it so expensive from suppliers or from his own staff? And so we did that transaction for a bit. And then at some point, I'm like, you know what? We're all tech guys because it looks like there's an opportunity here. Why don't we actually try and figure out how to solve this problem and automate it at scale? Because for context, at this point, we're also running teams across different parts of Africa. So I see you for a media business. And I was director of another media business before. And I was running teams in different cities across Africa. And so every time I traveled quarterly to different cities, I noticed that there was an inconsistency of either service or presence ETC. Like sometimes you go back after three months and the restaurant you ate at, which you liked before, has shut down. Or they had downsized. Or the service was so inconsistent that like this level of service you got the last time was so poor by the time you got back there. And all the problems usually boil down to operational issues with procurement, getting quality. So it looked like it was the problem that, that was at scale. So we, at that point, when we were like, you know what, let's figure out how to automate this and scale it across the different cities in Africa. We put together a thesis, looked at the size of the market, asked questions as we traveled, and then we put this together, figured out what market size would be, and then we took it to some angel investors um, in the Lagos um, tech ecosystem. And they give us some small funding as pre-seed. At this point, we still weren't gung-ho about doing this because we had very good jobs where we were earning good money. But the more we looked at the problem, the more it looked like we were going to solve this. And with the pre-seed funding, we thought, you know what, actually, let's just do this. For context, I grew up on a farm. Both of my parents owned farms when I was younger. And... Some of these issues, so because at this point we had conceived the idea of vendors, like instead of going to the open markets, why don't we just connect the restaurants and the food businesses directly to supply from farms and food manufacturers? And so it became an obvious problem because when I look back at my own childhood, 
And that's part of the reasons my parents stopped farming. We used to have issues with connecting to a market. So they raised both livestock and crops. With each harvest of crops, we would lose at least 60 to 70% of the harvest that we waste. And sometimes we'll have to give a lot of that away to neighbors, to friends, etc. because we couldn't sell them. At some point, my dad used to raise livestock too. And there was a time we had to give away goats and even take them off the farm and figure out where to put them because they were overbreeding. So on one end, the restaurants and the food businesses couldn't get a regular and consistent and quality supply. On the other end, the farmers did not have a direct connection to their markets. It was almost like a no-brainer, you know, let, let's just try and connect these bo- both ends. And so towards the end of 2019, we said, okay, you know what, let's do this full-time. And then all of us quit our jobs, the crazy things that entrepreneurs do, and decided to go ham on this, even though we didn't know how this was going to fund our lifestyles. And then on the 1st of January 2020, we officially started operations um, with one user. By February 2020, we had three users. And then the COVID has started in other parts of the world, but we didn't really feel it in Africa at that point, especially um, in Lagos. By March 2020, like around the beginning, late February, early March, COVID, we started to feel the pinch of COVID in, in Lagos. And towards the end of March, if I remember correctly, the government issued a lockdown. So, and at this point, we had three customers who were just trying to product and barely ordering week on week. And then all of a sudden, for the next three weeks, if I remember correctly, we had no orders because restaurants were shut down because nobody was coming in. Everybody had to stay at home because we were trying to copy the spread of the virus. And from having three clients who were using the products sort of regularly to no clients, we were a bit alarmed. We were like, you know what? Like, we just quit our jobs. And this thing that we thought we could possibly scale is looking like it's going about to die because of COVID. And so we got into entrepreneur mode because, hey, at this point, me, Olumide, and Wale. So Wale is our CTO. He joined us um, on the project much later on because we needed somebody who, like, I have a bit of tech background. Like, I used to code when I was big, much younger, but, like, it was not a strong skill set that I developed. I understand um, bits and bobs, but, but we needed somebody who was going to focus on building technology. And so we got in Wale, who was a friend of Gatimi's from church. And so we started building. Three of us had families at this point, and we're all like, yeah, <laughs> we don't have any income. Uh, we're not generating any revenue. How are we going to do it? And then we just kicked into survival mode for, as entrepreneurs usually do. And because we already had the early stages of, of the infrastructure for logistics, because at this point, we had already figured out, like, you know what, we might have to get into delivering this thing because promises were being broken by the suppliers. We pivoted into supplying COVID relief materials for that period because now they're the government had, I forgot what they call them now, but safe houses where they put people who were coming into the country or people who were diagnosed with COVID. So we started supplying those facilities with COVID relief materials through one of our contacts. Um, so that kept the business going for a bit. And then 54Gen, which is a genomics company, another YC company, which Katsumi was the former co-founder at, also started placing orders for some COVID relief materials. And so that kept us for a couple of weeks. And then the funny, like an amazing thing happened. Now, this is also backed by data. We realized that the average negotiator, and to a very large extent, the average African, doesn't cook, especially when it gets to a certain income level, doesn't like to cook at home. Like, many of them do not even have the apparatus or the infrastructure to cook uh, at scale at home. So during this three, four-week period, they've been managing and trying to sustain themselves 
at some point, they were like, you know what? Nah, we're not, we're not doing this anymore. We need to place all that. And so there were online delivery businesses that were already in place. And then those guys got overwhelmed. And then the restaurants who had shut down originally started to also receive orders online. And so because the stay-at-home policy was still in place, they themselves still could not go to the market. Now, we had pitched a lot of restaurants during our first two months. And all of them, the restaurant business is almost like the medical business. Everybody just wants to keep to the status quo. They want to keep doing the same thing they were doing a hundred years ago because they're comfortable doing this. Without realizing that with more efficiency, they could save a whole lot more money and make more money. But anyways, so during that period where people started to place online orders and they realized, you know what, they couldn't meet the demand if they didn't get more supplies. They started reaching out to us to say, you know what, you guys said you could do this, automate this, and you know, we could get on the website and place our orders. Are you interested in working with us? And so all of a sudden, in the space of the next two months during that lockdown, our growth spiked over 300%. At that point, I think we added like maybe 50 or 60 restaurants at a go. And so all our processes just started to break. But because we already kind of planned big and anticipated in the beginning that we, we would have a lot of users, we could adjust and grow with it. We expanded in staff, uh, strength. We expanded our technology, ETC. And then we continued to serve these guys. And by the end of the year, towards the end of the year, we had gotten to, if I remember correctly, almost a hundred users just before we go into YC. At this point, we had also applied to YC like twice. We didn't get in, but towards the end of the year, YC wrote to us to say, you know what? In the last batch of applicants, you guys were in the top 10% of applicants. So if you have grown significantly since the last time you applied, you stand a very good chance of getting in. But at this point, we're a bit jaded, getting rejected all the time. So we're like, you know what? Yeah, let's just go and raise our seat around ourselves. We've seen a lot of growth. By October, we're even broken even. We're going towards profitability. Like after our expenses, we're able to pay salaries and foot our bills. And that was because from the very beginning, because we didn't have money, we had to figure out unit economics from the very beginning. So our unit economies had to be profitable. So on every single order, we needed to be making a profit. So that helped us to quickly scale to break even and profitability level. Anyways, long story short, we got confirmation of going to YC towards the end of the year, 2020. And then by the first quarter of 2021, when we actually started YC, I think that's when we hit our first 100 um, user. And then shortly after that, we raised our, our seed round. That's how we got to our first 100 customers. Did you do any acquisition strategies that did not work? So, because I have a very strong sales and business development background, also, Olumide, who is my co-founder and COO, it was easy for us to figure out an acquisition strategy that will work. Because we're both dealing with B2B, we're also dealing with government. So, we quickly realized, first of all, we didn't have any money for online marketing. That was not even an option. So, we just decided, you know what, all four of us would have shifts going door-to-door to to these restaurants and pitching them. And that's the strategy that quickly worked for us. And that's the strategy to a very large extent that we still use even now. Because for B2B sales, it's a whole lot more technical and different from B2C sales. So talking to decision makers directly is more effective than sending them ads or sending them emails, etc. So we didn't really have an acquisition strategy that didn't work because this strategy we tried from the beginning just worked. Like essentially, just look at Google Maps, plot out all the restaurants on the street, and then decide, you know what, for this week, we're going to talk to all the restaurants on the street. And that's how we acquired our users. Then that's a very interesting... Our us- Sorry, just quickly add. And then our users, as they use the platform, 
started referring us to other restaurant businesses to test us out because we're solving problems with them. That's a very interesting strategy. For our listeners, when you say door to door, how do you deal with rejections? Because probably you knock on one or two doors, they, they just say no. How do you deal with that? And how do you persevere to get them again on the map with you? If you're going to be an entrepreneur, first off, you have to learn how to deal with nodes. You're going to get a million nodes, like literally, whether in fundraising, whether in customer acquisition, like you're going to get rejected a lot. So you need a thick skin. And basically that's how it goes with me. Like we go, you say no, we move on to the next target, but we still have you on our list. Usually we have a plan to circle back after maybe a month or a couple of weeks or get to another person who might be a decision maker and then possibly get a yes. But the thing with marketplaces, because that's what we started as, as a pure marketplace devoted to an ERP and procurement engine, you start to have that multiplier effect where when one user uses it, um, they like it, they recommend you to the next person, the next person likes it. And because you're not having a lot of demand on the platform, suppliers also want to be on your platform because they know that there's a lot of access to the market through your platform. Then you can get better prices than they will get themselves, which makes your platform even more attractive to more users. That's essentially what, what happened to us. So the first couple of users was manual labor getting them because they didn't know who we were. They didn't know about the technology ETC. But as soon as we started to get one, two, three, four, five, six on the platform, it became easier to pitch because we could just say, oh, these guys use us. Why don't you test us? Thank you for sharing this. You raised 30 million in the early uh, round in your Series A, and the market has cooled off recently, especially the VC market. Impressively, you raised that within a few weeks. What three factors have played to your favor? So if you notice earlier, I had said... We've been very conscious about, you know, the economics from the very beginning and, and that was out of necessity. So one of the blessings we had very early was we didn't have money. If we'd raised like maybe a million pre-seed, we would have tried out many money-wasting techniques or acquisition models that would have made us waste a lot of money. But because we literally had to make money to keep the business running, like pay salaries, pay rent, etc., we're very, very, very big on economics from the very beginning. And so that's the same model we run now. We don't use 99 pence to buy $1. Every transaction is profitable for us. Even though our users still get the best um, prices on our platform because of some of our business strategies. So yes, that was very attractive to investors, especially in this market where there are a lot of businesses that are just generating transactions and are not really making money. So that kind of set us apart. That's one. Two, our technology is pretty robust. Like the, our data gathering, um, how we apply the data of data for the user and how we use that data to run efficient business op- operations um, also kind of set us apart because we had some of the biggest supply chain um, investors looking to us during this round. And the f- general feedback that we got um, from many of them was that like our technology was actually world-class, not just for Africa, but like for actually for supply chain businesses around the world. That also st- stuck out for us. And then finally... We were growing really fast and we're still growing very fast. And because we're growing fast and we're essentially in like a blue ocean market where we're first movers and then there's no real competition, it was also very attractive for investors for us. So a couple of all these factors put together and some other that are not at liberty to discuss kind of give us an edge in the market, even though the market conditions were not favorable to funding and VCs putting their money in, in new businesses. Thank you for sharing this. 
When you look back on your childhood, were there early signs that young Tunde was ever going to be an entrepreneur? I know it's easy to write history and, and say, oh yeah, this, this kid who was going to do great things. But I think maybe the earlier signs that I, I would have been an entrepreneur or going to be an entrepreneur where the fact that I, I'm very introverted, most people don't know this. And I've always been a one of those people who like to buck the trend. If you told me to do something, I always wanted to know why. I wasn't easy to bully. Like, if you wanted me to do something, I always figured out the easiest way, this, the most stressless way to do it. And I'm still like that. And I guess that's also what has helped me in my career and also in the business because I'm always looking for the most efficient, easiest way to do stuff. I think it was Bill Gates that said once that in his organization when he was running Microsoft, when he had very difficult tasks, he usually looks for the laziest people to give those tasks because the laziest people would always look for the easiest most efficient ways, these most trustless ways to do so. That's kind of how I grew up. My earliest business was in university. I wanted extra money that my parents were not going to give me. And then, so I got into selling stuff and like, so I started a watch sales business and that did very well, give me a lot more money than some of my, my mates. So I guess that was the earliest sign in actual running a business that I had. And then when I even started working for other people, I would usually be the employee who would come up with new ideas to make money that the business had not figured out yet. In fact, uh, when I was at Mingi, a Swiss company um, that owns some of the biggest digital assets in Europe and in Africa, I actually started a business within the business that within um, 18 months had generated millions of dollars in revenue. And I was running that across Africa. I've always had that trick of doing the abnormal, like not following trends. Um, not because I wanted to make money or essentially start a business, but just because I, I realized, you know, everybody's going in this direction. If I went in this other direction, it might be more profitable. It might be able to make, add more value doing this. So in that sense, maybe, yeah, there was always a sign. But outside of that, I think I was just a normal kid. Thank you for sharing this. What were conversations you had at dinner with your parents? So... I grew up with typical African parents who always wanted you to be the best at everything, no matter how good you're doing. Like, I can't remember my dad ever congratulating me on any good results. He was always, oh, you know, you could have done better than this, you know, like, why didn't you get the extra 10%? Growing up now, like, I see how ridiculous that was, but I guess it always just kind of puts you on edge to always want to do the best. So even at dinner, when we had dinner together as a family, it was usually about something about school or something about how to succeed. I remember one night conversation because I like animals a lot. And I was telling my mom at the time that when I grew up, I want to be a zoologist. And then she looks at me very clearly. Like, I'll never forget this conversation. She was like, how many zoologists do you know that I'm making here? And then I went to do my research for a couple of days and I couldn't find any. I was like, yeah, if you need to feed your family, when you have a family, you need to find another career to pursue. I, I don't think I was more than 10 years old at this time. But I never forgot that conversation. So, yeah, this is the sort of conversation I used to have with my parents um, as a kid. Tunde, thank you for being part of our show and sharing uh, your amazing story. Best of luck with uh, Vendiz. Uh, how can people reach you? Yeah, I, I get lots of bombardment of emails, but you can reach me on, on social media. I'm on Twitter. Just look for T-U-N-double-D-E. T-U-N-D-D-E on Twitter. That's the 
easiest way to reach me. Other than that, my other stuff is a bit private because I get a lot of a lot of traffic for uh, like a lot of messages that I need to read through. Thank you, Tunde, and have a great day. Thank you, Hadi. Thank you so much for listening to the first 100. We hope it inspired you in your journey. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify, and share it with a friend starting their entrepreneurship journey. Leave us a five-star review. Your support will help spread our podcast to more viewers. 